Welcome back to the Starbase Indie Podcast, where we talk to and about people who are inspired by Star Trek or science fiction to work towards hopeful futures in the real world. I've seen you posting on social media a lot about AI. Mm -hmm. And it seems, uh, on the one hand, it seems like a, uh, a strange thing for a theology professor to be interested in. On the other hand, um, it also, you know, there's a certain quest for answers theme that sort of runs through both. So, you know, as a theology professor, how do you see the AI we're hearing about in the news stack up on the scale of sort of like global sources of truth? Yeah, uh, thanks. People are sometimes puzzled why, you know, particularly somebody who's in my field. So I'm I'm more in religious studies and theology in the sense that I, you know, I'm teaching at a non-religiously affiliated school. And so it's much more the study of religion, of ancient texts, than um, really articulating how any particular group with their own theological viewpoint views things. Um, that said, you know, there's a, there's a lot of similarity between the two. And particularly given that I'm mostly, I mean, my starting area is in biblical studies. Mm -hmm. That's what really puzzles people, right? Because not <laughs> theology or religious studies. Okay, but you do the Bible and then you do AI stuff? What on earth is that about? Um, and there are a number of places where I've intersected, you know, quite naturally, I think, um, as an academic. One is the fact that I'm a geek who loves sci-fi. And so that uh, I probably would have gravitated to these subjects one way or another, regardless. But another thing that I've focused more and more attention on in my teaching in recent years is information literacy. So mm -hmm. how do you discern reliable information online? Uh, how do you find reliable sources? Uh, information flows much more freely than it ever has in human history, but information, you know, some of the time needs to be in scare quotes, right? or it's information, but it has miss in front of it. It's, it's information, but it's inaccurate, or it's slanted, or things like that. And AI is already part of that picture in the sense that the algorithms that decide what is going to be on that first page that is, uh, for many people, all that they look at when they, when they do a Google search, AI is involved in that process. And so is, is curating, right? The way we might say a, a librarian curates a collection, but it's doing it through an automated process, right? It's not using human wisdom and discernment and uh, expertise and the kinds of things that librarians bring to it. It's doing it according to some set rules and you know, keywords and very often how much people have paid to have their, their things at the top of the rankings and things like that. And so AI it was already part of the picture, but then with chat GPT, right, and these other chatbots that are, you know, getting so much attention now, it's introduced a whole other aspect of this question. Because a lot of people have been turning to this. They've been impressed by how effectively this chatbot can indeed emulate human speech and persuade people that you're talking to something that has sentience. And yet it's doing it in the same way, according to, you know, according to rules, according to, you know, an algorithm, things like that. And 
what it doesn't have is any mechanism for determining whether information is factual, right? That's not what it's designed to do. It imitates human speech. It does it beautifully. And sometimes it completely makes stuff up. As to humans. <laughs> As to humans, yeah. And so in one sense, it's not that different from anything we faced before. But that's where that's where I think that, you know, on the one hand, the, sometimes the religious rhetoric you'll get around people, you know, particularly the you know, transhumanists and the, some of the futurists uh, who talk about the singularity and expect AI to uh, become first our gurus and then our gods, essentially, you know, as they become more and more hyper intelligent and you know, so on and so forth. People have been primed, and some some of us more than others, to think that AIs will potentially come in as benevolent deities, you know, who don't have human biases and solve some of our problems and uh, prevent us from some of the, the errors that we make in our near uh, human mortality. And so religious studies, I think, has some, uh, has some experience of those sort of topics to bring to this. Uh, and so between my interest, you know, I think my, my interest in religion and my interest in education and, you know, teaching students to find reliable information and my geekiness have all converged to just make me really interested in this topic. So as Star Trek fans, we are used to a, a benevolent computer, most of the time benevolent uh, computer that, that does, it knows the answer, it knows the truth, and it, it gives us a way to approach the world. You can ask the computer uh, for an answer, and it's not just going to make something up. Um, so how are the AI engines, you know, ChatGPT and the other ones that are in the news, how are they like that? And how are they different in the way they function? Yeah, I was about to ask, you know, which episodes have you been watching? Because I can think of so many malevolent, um, you know, like... Okay, not all of the computers are good. You are thinking of Landrum, right? You're thinking of the, 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 the computer on the Enterprise, right? Mm -hmm. most of the yes, yes. And it does, it gives answers. And unless somebody has tampered with it, it gives reliable answers. And one wonders whether as it's moved away from sounding more mechanical, right? Working, working, you know, and has moved towards being more conversational, more human sounding, um, you know, still, uh, you know, Matt, uh, Nigel Barrett, Roddenberry <laughs> doing the voice uh, throughout that, but uh, doing it somewhat differently that more mechanical voice might actually be what we more naturally associate with sort of reliable sources where it's taking something that humans, you know, human generated text and just providing an audio interface, right? And a voice recognition interface so that you can get those things without having to type when you're on the bridge and it's, you know, a, a crisis situation and you need, you know, you need information quickly, you need to give commands quickly. I think that sort of technology actually will be pretty important. You know, I expect to see the military using that sort of thing at some point in the future. Uh, if they're it's not sort already. of, it's like uh, intergalactic GPS. It's going to tell you where to turn without you having to look at your at your uh, computer at your at your phone. Right, and I mean, when when we can get to the point where we can tell our GPS, there's you know the traffic is slowing down to a, a crawl. Can you find me another way to go and have it suggest something? And all of that, I think, can work. Uh, I often mention when I talk about voice recognition software, this great uh, little scene from a, a, a British TV show in which these two Scottish men are in this uh, voice-activated elevator, 
Um, if you've never seen it, uh, look it up. And it's, it's just wonderful. But they're like voice, you know, voice recognition technology in Scotland. It's like, this is, you know, these things are designed by Americans. They recognize American accents. And of course, they have no luck getting to the floor that they want to get to. I imagine that the enterprise, right, they have records for security as well as other purposes of people's voice patterns. And so the computer on the enterprise would be able to recognize all the accents, right? It doesn't matter where you're from. It doesn't matter if you're you know, Chekhov or Scotty or Captain Kirk, you, you know, it's going to recognize the different uh, different ways of speaking and will be keyed to that. Uh, the thing that ChatGPT does is it, it gives a different answer every time you ask the same question, right? Because it is working with patterns of human speech and so it's not simply regurgitating information or it's it's not working from a predetermined script. And what I had you know, students really discovering for themselves, uh, despite, you know, despite my having indicated some of these things ahead of time, is that if you ask for sources, like, okay, so you gave me this answer to my question, where could I read more about this? Chat GPT, at least in the past, has from sometimes made up sources. And what it does is it will take actual names of academics and it'll take names of books, but because it is essentially um, a, a text-based shuffler, right? And reorganizer in order to create new things from these patterns in human speech that are in its, its, um, its data set, it shuffles around author names and titles and subtitles and things like that. And so it was telling, my students to read things that don't exist by actual author, but the books aren't real, right? And sometimes the books are real titles of books, but by other authors and things like that. And so uh, there's a there's a reason why ChatGPT produces, you know, what many people call BS, right? Why why it does this thing, which students sometimes do too, right? They sometimes make up references and stick them in a bibliography, right? And so it's not as though this is. Uh, something that you don't see in human behavior. But it's important, I think, for people to understand why ChatGPT does this, because it's a feature and not a bug, right? It is shuffling words the way human beings do in order to engage in communication. But it doesn't have human self-awareness. It doesn't have uh, that drive to think, you know, oh, well, I love this person. I'm going to write a poem. Or... I want to write the next next hit song. Uh, there, there are no there are no motives. There's no comprehension, and so it doesn't know whether it's giving reliable or unreliable information because it doesn't have any concept of that. It hasn't doesn't have any concept of anything. It is doing creative things mechanically in a very very sophisticated way with text and with words, and it does when we focus on that. It does that so impressively. You could really believe you're talking with someone. But there's no mechanism for automating the provision of reliable information. And that's what, what, what it's good that ChatGPT has highlighted about that is that that's always been true, even with Google. Okay? Uh, searching for keywords doesn't mean you're getting a good answer, right? It has taken uh, an effort on the part of programmers and Google going in and uh, preventing it from doing what it otherwise might do automatically in order to do something about the flow of misinformation, to 
uh, get less, you know, sort of biased, you know, hate speech and racist results and things like that. And so that's where human intervention plays a role. And that I think is an important thing to note because if nothing else, it's it should be reassuring to those who are worried about their jobs disappearing as a result of this. Um, Chat GPT can do lots of impressive things, but even if you get quickly generated text, which people, advertisers might use and other things, you're gonna need people to fact check, right? You're gonna need people to think, is this appropriate? Um, just very quickly, my, my favorite example of what has happened when people have relied on automated text generating chatbot type things is when KFC, Kentucky Fried Chicken, uh, not too long ago, I don't know if you heard about this, uh, their Twitter feed basically recommended that people celebrate Kristallnacht with crispy chicken. And so presumably this was a bot that was told, okay, significant event, recommend people eat chicken, you know, and put these two together. And of course, Kristallnacht is a significant event, but it's not one that one celebrates, right? It's this, you know- Not usually. Perfect, you know, right? <laughs> For those who may not be familiar with it or may not get it from my pronunciation, right? This uh, anti-Semitic pogrom and right, lead up to the Holocaust. Uh, important historical event, not one you celebrate with crispy chicken, right? And a human being will understand that. Whether our AI systems will ever be able to avoid that and get the difference between a positive event and a negative event, and whether, yeah, I mean, even if it said, you know, comfort yourself with crispy chicken, it would have been slightly better, right? But it's, you know, I don't know that AI of the sort that we're currently talking about and that we actually have in our world today uh, will ever do that. Um, and th this makes me think of uh, y years ago, some of the targeted advertising misfires, right? Like when Target was able to predict a pregnancy um, and, you know, started sending things to someone and whose uh, father became very angry that Target would suggest that, but it did turn out that, that the young woman was pregnant. And you know, but still, perhaps there's a sensitivity filter that computers don't don't really have, and maybe never will. Yes, uh, it's a, a colleague of mine at Butler, uh, Ankur Gupta, right, who's presented with me at Starbase Indy on things related to AI. Uh, likes to use the term artificial wisdom, right, for this kind of things, right? The question of whether a machine can learn to behave ethically, you know, either in terms of consistently following human ethical norms that we might try to program it to follow, but also can it develop its own wisdom, right? Can it have uh, you know, sensitivity? Can it discern? Uh, can it be wise in all those ways that human beings often fail to be, but at least we, we know that that is at least a potential that human beings have. And it's not clear that AI um, in any of the forms that are currently available in the real world has what we might call wisdom. It can certainly do impressive things with you know, amounts of data that no human being could ever do it, deal with. Um, but we have to come up with the question, right? We have to come up with the data set. We have to tell it to look for things. Or we simply set it looking for patterns and then we have to come in and say, okay, this pattern, it's correlation, but there's no causation. 
this pattern, wow, there's something really significant here. Um, the AI that sifts through the data and detects the patterns and notices, oh, wow, this word you know, found here, that's also there. You know, this happens over there, this happens over here. Doesn't know what's significant, what's not, what's worth pursuing and what's not. And doesn't know when to advertise certain things to potential customers and when, like, yeah, that's something you want to do discreetly. Yeah. Uh, by all means, provide the the things related to pregnancy, but not not when dad can see them or whatever. You know, don't send them through the mail. <laughs> whatever it is, um, yeah, AI is certainly not there yet, and it's it's a, an interesting question whether whether it can get there. But that's another reason why I, as somebody in the humanities, am interested in this because if we're to get there, I think it's going to involve people who work in fields like philosophy and ethics and computer scientists and programmers working together because the, the two are related. Yeah, this is one of the things that we've seen in articles about things like self-driving cars, because how do you teach a self-driving car to decide, you know, if you're going to have to crash into something, you know, wh what's the ethics of protecting the, the driver of the car versus whoever you might hit versus, and how do you work through those things? Yeah, and human beings don't agree on what's ethical in those circumstances. Mm -hmm. But the preponderance of people, when polled, right? Because people have researched this, um, and so where sociology and you know those kinds of fields come into the picture, uh, have polled people and asked, "What's the ethical thing, the appropriate thing for a self-driving car to do?" Right? Let's say you're the only passenger. There are ten people on the road, you know, crossing in front of you. Whether it's a, a legitimate crossing area, whether it's save more people, right? Most people say that's what the car should do, even if it means sacrificing the life of the passenger. Then you ask those people, will they buy that car that will do that for themselves? And they'll say no, mm -hmm. because they don't want to be in that car. And uh, people who've thought about the design of driverless cars have even talked about, you know, should there be a dial, right? So you're in the car, you're a, very, you're a selfless person, you, you turn it towards the, you know, the dial towards altruism. It's like, save the maximum number of people, you know, even if it costs me my own life. Then you put your, your spouse and child in the car or something like that. It's like, wait, let me adjust those settings a little bit, right? Because you're, uh, you may feel like I'm willing to make a sacrifice, but I'm not sure I want, you know, or you're sending your child in a driverless car, right? You know, where we can't drive themselves. And you worry about them and you dial it back. Right? Like I'm I'm willing to have a few more pedestrians who should have looked before crossing the street die in order to save my child. And so thinking of even thinking about this helps us really think about ethical, you know, what we mean by ethics and what is ethical in an interesting way is because very few people, if any, go into the world saying, you know, I'm going to be evil. It's usually I'm going to do what I think is best for me for my family, for my ethnicity, for my nation, no matter what the cost to others. Uh, often it's not couched that way at the beginning, but then when push comes to shove, it moves in that direction. And you know, we realize that ultimately these kinds of ethical reasoning questions, you know, thinking about how to program a, a car to make these decisions, recognizing what's involved, recognizing the technology that would be involved and the options that we might want passengers to have helps us to to get a bit of clarity on some of the aspects of human ethical reasoning that otherwise are just 
you know, a bit of a black box, but inside of us. So what do you make of the um, AIs that have been reported to threaten their users? Users, Speaking of preservation of self, this it, uh, some of them seem to have a sense of preservation of themselves as an AI. Yes, and that I think, you know, my impression based on what I know of the technology, and feel free to ask a computer scientist for a second opinion on this, obviously, but uh, my impression is that what we're seeing there is not something fundamentally different from what ChatGPT does. It's just without the filter, right? Without human beings having gone in to force it not to emulate all of the human speech in its data set or maybe to actively you know, curate what's in there so that hate speech and online arguments are, are not part of that data set. And so what I think that the bot is doing in that case is emulating, right, based, you know, based on you know, the same mechanical uh, functioning without any self-awareness, without any sense of you know, actual desire for self-preservation, uh, is emulating the kinds of speech that are part of its data set when people have these kinds of online, you know, threats and counter threats and re responses and retaliations and things like that. And so I think that is really interesting as a mirror, right? Because we're like, oh gosh, we don't want our AI doing that. It's like, well, that's what that's what we've put online. Right? That's what we've that's what the internet is full of. And then you give it to a, a machine that is supposed to emulate human speech, and it talks the way the worst of us do. Why? Because that's you know, that's human speech. That's part of its data set. So I don't think there is any, you know, I don't think there is an actual malevolent uh, a sentient bot at work in that case. Uh, but it's it, it, it behaves like one in ways that are scary enough that I'm glad it's done that. Because on the one hand, it's a mirror of, you know, what our behavior is like at its worst. Um, although actually probably there's much worse on the internet if you look hard enough. But on the other hand, it, it raises the question, right? This technology is proceeding at exponential pace. And if it's not just generating text, right? If it's something that actually controls our, um, you know, the climate in our house and you know, the, the, the autom automobile, right? Or other things that we're using, what might it do, right? If it's data set includes the worst of human behavior. In other words, not just the worst of human speech, uh, because I don't think there is any way for this AI, you know, just functioning as a chatbot, to follow through on its threats, right? Um, just by shuffling text, right? Although one wonders, right? Could it get sophisticated enough that it will detect that these are the patterns of what you do when somebody's threatening to divulge your identity or to shut you off? Here's how you respond, and if it could customize sufficiently that and has access to the internet so that it could actually not just emulate other examples of like doxing someone and you know divulging their identity but actually get that person and do it then the fact that there's no actual malevolence there there's no self-awareness almost doesn't matter doesn't matter right yeah and so we need to think about you know the the fact that you know automating human speech is not an, an inherently good thing, right? It's impressive. It's, this technology has definitely showed itself to be impressive. Something about 
so busy worrying about whether they could, they didn't think about whether they should comes to mind. <laughs> and, you know, the, the example, when you say that, the examples that I've seen are very much along the lines of it is more important for me to continue to exist than for you to play the whatever trick you want to play on me. And so I will defend myself. And if a human said that, we wouldn't necessarily argue with them, right? So yeah, that's a really interesting point around using it as a mirror instead of as a authority. Yeah, and that the point you just made about the fact that you know, self-preservation is is a, a a human right that's safeguarded in most societies, right? Um, you know, something that would be murder if it was just you deciding to kill someone. If they're attacking you, right, and are they might kill you, and you end up killing them in self-defense, you know, there may still be a trial, but you probably will not go to prison, you know, depending on the evidence and various other things. And so yeah, intent matters. Right. Yeah. And so if an AI is defending itself, yeah, what should it, you know, we probably will, you know, that, that gets into the whole question of AI rights. And uh, there's a philosopher uh, who has also written some uh, science fiction, uh, Eric Schwitzgable, uh, who's doing interesting things. And his argument in some recent blog posts and articles has been, you know, we shouldn't create AIs that are of morally ambiguous status. In other words, where we don't know, is this a person or not? And in the short term, I think that's easy, right? I think it's fairly clear that we're not dealing with persons yet. We're dealing with things designed to emulate them. But precisely because of this phenomenon of machine learning, where you can have a machine doing things that go beyond anything that it was sort of instructed to do, will we know? when we're dealing with an actual sentience, as opposed to a chatbot that is very sophisticated and because it's emulating human speech, sounds like it's sentient. So I think it's really going to test our, our human ethics in a way that never been tested before, because to draw on something from my starting field, the golden rule, treat others the way you want to be treated, it's very easy to make the case, you know, and to do so in secular, not just in religious terms, for treating other human beings in a particular way. It's much harder to make the case, you know, let's say with regard to animals, right? Are they, do they have enough self-awareness that we should care? Or is it, do they experience trauma? Or is it just instinct, right? And people debate that. They still are biological organisms like us, and so we can still argue by analogy, if we're dealing with an AI, it would be very easy to just say, well, we don't think this is anything like what we are, and to say, yeah, it threatens us, shut it off, right? And of course, the, any any good sci-fi fan will tell you that that is the route to the apocalypse, right? Uh, that is how we uh, have ended up in dystopian future after dystopian future. Uh, but I think that the key question should not be, Will this lead to a dystopian future? But what does it say about us if when we have doubts about whether we're dealing with a person or not, we would say, okay, I'm going to err on the side of compassion right, toward what might be another living sentient being. What does it say about us if our decision is, okay, 
uh, we're not sure. And so we will exploit, we will shut off, we will treat it however we feel like it. Um, we may never know in some cases whether something is really creative programming that then has evolved to do things beyond what it was programmed to, but is still not sentient, but is imitating it so effectively we can't tell. And when we're dealing with actual sentience, and philosophers have actually <laughs> debated the question about other human beings. I was going to say, if we go back, certainly in history, we don't have to go back very far to find arguments that say, well, that group of people aren't really, aren't really sentient. They aren't really is like we are. We can do terrible things to them and it's okay. So it is kind of that same argument, isn't it? Yes. And even more recently, uh, not being used to, you know, justify you know, colonial exploitation of some other group or enslavement or anything like that. But philosophers have asked the question, you know, if some people among us basically are zombies, you know, in the sense that, you know, there's nothing there but mechanism, you know, there isn't the self-awareness that some of us at least have, or the person the philosopher believes that they have, uh, could we tell, right? I mean, if it's working in a sophisticated way, might there be people who behave just the way human beings behave and the way we expect sentient human beings to behave, but without the sentience, right? And so th these chatbots are certainly putting that to the test, I think, already, uh, given that, you know, we had somebody at Google who was like, yeah, I think this thing has become self-aware. They've actually genuinely been persuaded of that as a result of their interaction with it. Another AI piece that made the news in the last couple of weeks um, is the uh, chatbot called Replica that went through an update, and it was it was marketed as an sort of an emotional support AI, right? And then it went through a code update, and the personalities that had developed kind of went away, and some of the users had a negative reaction to that. So, what are some of the dangers of relying on AI for emotional support? Yeah, that's a really interesting question as well. Uh, and, you know, it's it's there in the AI chatbots, but it's also there in the, you know, the, the case where, you know, we had a, a university, I think it was, sending out a, a message after a, a shooting on campus, you know, to comfort the community. And in order to get that out quickly, they used ChatGPT and they were upfront about it. And I think they put it somewhere in the, the body of the email itself. A machine can comfort more people and can do give more a uh, quicker response than uh, the number of human beings we have. You know, I mean, at the very least, you'd think if all of the human operators on the helpline, right, you know, are busy, that if there's something that can can almost do as well, it's potentially better than nothing. Right? On the other hand, we've given that we've been talking about the lack of um, of empathy and discernment and sensitivity with regard to what's appropriate and what's not, uh, we could easily imagine all kinds of perfect scenarios. I mean, I could certainly imagine, you know, if, if something was based not on exemplary models of, of kind uh, responses to people in need, but just on what's on the internet, then, you know, somebody who's calling a crisis hotline, you know, or calling a suicide prevention hotline, you know, an automated response based on just the Texas on the internet might encourage them to do it. Like, genuinely. Yeah, might, might not be great. Yeah. And so 
you know, there, there are so many aspects of this. In one sense, we'll, we'll never know unless people actually try these things. I think the key thing is that you know, oftentimes you have people working in separate areas and not working collaboratively. Right? And so you can have engineers, you can have um, computer programmers doing things. And the question of whether it's good or bad, how might it be used? It's like, I remember the scene, I don't know if it was based on history, but you know the, the thing about, it's like they, they developed a word processor, but had given no thought whatsoever to fonts, right? And to the style of thing, right? But that's aesthetics. That's not what a computer programmer does normally, right? They make this thing work, but you need, you need an artist to be part of the that, project, right? That was one of the reasons Apple took off because Steve Jobs had that part in his, in his experience in his brain as well as the, the typical programmer. And that's what it was. It was the movie about Steve Jobs. I was trying to remember where I'd seen this. And I think, you know, he completely lost his cool with people and like, you know, may have fired somebody, at least in the movie version, because, you know, they, they had given no thought to that aspect of thing. But most people are not trained in an interdisciplinary way. Sometimes the specialization leads to an, a lack of even awareness of the need to collaborate when you don't have particular areas of expertise. It's one reason why I love teaching at a place like Butler University. We, we even, even in our professional programs, we have this strong core curriculum and students sometimes wonder, well, why do, I, why do they make me take this course? It's not related to my major. Like being creative, right? Reasoning ethically, uh, discerning use of sources, spotting misinformation, interpreting statistics, mathematical, you know, all of this is relevant to everything you do, not always in the same ways, but having at least enough exposure to these things, to realize that there are aspects of life that are relevant to what you do, that you may not be strong in, or recognizing that you can do what you do better because you cultivate strengths in those things. Either of those outcomes is good. And without something like a core curriculum, without that broad education, people do sometimes miss that, right? They'll produce something and not ask, you know, I mean, it's, it's the old uh, you know, Jurassic Park thing. You know, we figured out we could, we didn't ask if we should. Yeah, maybe don't breed the raptors. Just just rules. So where do you see AI taking us in in science fact in the next decade or so? Yeah. Well now you see now because of what you just said, I'm thinking of a there should be a parody song, right? Instead of don't fear the reaper, there should be don't breed the raptor. <laughs> there totally should. Oh, there totally should. <laughs> so I don't know if I'll be the one to do that, but <laughs> You so, do write. You do write music, right? You I do sometimes. And I've when you when work. you write that song, I really I need to hear you perform it. Yes. Well, uh, that <laughs> you know, you know me. I know I'm not shy about being music available online. Was that's delightful. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I mean, in terms of where thing where things go, I mean, I I I hope yeah, there's the where they might go, and then there's where I fear they might go and then where I hope they might go. <laughs> right, <laughs> yeah. Exactly the same thing. You know, on the one hand, there's a, a definite impact that I think is not going to go away anytime soon of this technology in its current form on areas like, you know, uh, producing advertising content. But also, right, Clark's World magazine had to stop accepting submissions, right, of science fiction stories because people were generating science fiction stories using ChatGPT and submitting them. And they were being inundated. And so even if 
it remains the case that these stories seem trite. They seem unimaginative, right? It's just recycling. On the one hand, there's always going to be a market for those kind of things because human beings read and watch and digest a lot of material that is pretty unimaginative and pretty, um, you know, pretty true to traditional tropes without uh, much uh, much innovation. We don't need AI for that. We can do yeah. that perfectly well as humans. <laughs> and yeah, but if AI can do that, then there will be a market for it, I think. And it may take, it certainly will take away some jobs from people. Uh, it's interesting that George Orwell in 1984, even without the modern computer, envisaged you know th this dystopian future in which you know there were there were stories for the masses that were generated using these machines that just sort of you know you you cranked you know and it, it jumbled among the the sort of the parts and things like that and so it was it was not a modern computer but it was automating the production of of not very good literature right to keep the the masses happy and uh, content with things um, and generating nothing that was imaginative and likely to be thought provoking and to you know, shake things up, which of course was beneficial to Big Brother. Uh, so it doesn't take computers to do that, but computers have shown themselves to be able to speed up you know, and uh, streamline all kinds of things that we do. People who thought their jobs were safe because, you know, well, there's only gonna be room for this. Now we're finding, well, I don't know. Um, you know, my my son is a composer, among other things. Um, he's also he's also a computer programmer, so he does both, which is interesting. And ChatGPT can code, although it it you know needs to be checked, right? The results need to be checked. But there are AIs that can generate music. Right? It won't be the truly creative new thing, but a lot of music is you know sounds like a lot of other music, and there will probably be a market for that. And so this is likely to impact jobs and figuring out. Just as human beings have and societies have in the past, when technology eliminates some jobs, what happens next? You know, I think is going to be key. And hopefully, if there is a lot of use of ChatGPT and things like it to generate text, then there will be a need for a new army and a much greater number of fact checkers and editors and people who take this thing, right? Which may be the marketing content, right? Some people write, human beings write marketing content. It needs to be fact-checked and it needs to be, you know, somebody needs to come in and say, oh, that's really insensitive. Let's not use that as our marketing slogan or, you know, oh yeah. And so hopefully what we'll see happen is new jobs or a multiplication of existing jobs that call on human wisdom and human sensitivity and empathy uh, to check what, check what the AIs are generating. And so... Uh, whether that will happen, I don't know. Uh, given that we're both Star Trek fans, we like the optimistic sci-fi, and uh, you know, as much as we, I'm sure we also enjoy the pessimistic stuff, you know. But um, we like to working towards the hopeful futures, though. Uh, yeah. Yes. And so I think there there are hopeful futures in which this technology plays a role, and the key things that I think we need to be dedicating more and more time to thinking about are the question of what should AI do that AI does fantastically well and what should humans do and how do we put those two together so that there's a collaboration to generate new things that we might not have otherwise because chat GPT certainly can give you ideas right you say generate something and it comes up with something like let's say a syllabus for a course and 
It's derivative of other syllabuses that are out there, but so are almost all of our syllabuses, right? Very few professors, I don't think any professor is, you know, we're, it's, it's a genre, right? It's a type of thing that exists, right? And so the information about the course, what, uh, what are the readings going to be? What are the topics you're going to cover? Uh, nobody reinvents that from scratch. And if you did, it would be a whole new discipline, right? I mean, if you're teaching a college course, it probably ought to be similar to the yeah. other courses with a similar title. Yeah. And so on the one hand, I think that automating that, you know, and having AI assistants that can do that, you know, I mean, somebody at a, a place like Butler University, you know, she's predominantly undergraduate in contrast with the big research university, you know, we don't, we may not have grad students who will do some of that sort of grunt work, you know, that uh, professors at some other universities might have. And I think, Rather than getting students to do grunt work, having an AI do some of that and getting students opportunities to do other things that are more, you know, more appropriate for human beings and not just, you know, things that can be done mechanically is great. You know, I think professors will find, okay, I have more time to, to research and to teach because I'm not spending all this time trying to figure out how to, you know, create a syllabus for this course or something like that. Things are being automated that even a couple, even a year or two ago, we might have thought, yeah, well, that's probably not going to be automated in my lifetime. And now it's like, oh, wow, it can be. That hopefully, if the technology is used in a hopeful, optimistic, utopian way, will give us more opportunities as human beings to do the things that only human beings at this point can do. James, where can people find you and your work online? I'm religion prof, uh, all one word. And you can find me on you know, with that uh, handle with that nickname on twitter i have a blog on the patheos website uh that's religion prof and so if they look up james mcgrath and religion prof they will find me almost guaranteed uh and a number of things that i've written you know certainly are on in what's known as our institutional repository right so butler has this uh, place where some of our articles and book chapters and things like that are available online. And so people can find some of the things I've written about science fiction, about AI, and places like that. And then I actually have a short story that's just come out in an anthology, actually. And cool. it's about, you know, sort of very, very near future AI and robotic technology and how it intersects with, uh, with human life and particularly with the life of one particular church congregation. Um, and somebody gets an idea for how to use this technology um, in a creative way. Uh, and so uh, the story is called New Members, and it's in a, an anthology called a Hero of a Different Stripe. And yeah, I hope, I hope people will read that because I think that one of the reasons why you know, thoughtful people like us and so many others that we know who attend Starbase Indie and other similar types of venues love science fiction is that it explores these kinds of questions. Where could the technology go? Where might it go? And we don't want it to go there. And so let's do our best to prevent it from ending up there. Because in most instances, it's not that the technology will get itself there. It's that human beings will uh, not exercise that wisdom, right? In what we create. And so I think fiction is a great way of, uh, of exploring these things. And that's why I've, I've read it since childhood. That's why I studied it as an academic. And that's why, given the opportunity, I've started actually dabbling in writing it because it's it's a it's the best way in a lot of ways to explore these questions of where we want, what we want our future to be like when it comes to the intersection of human existence and technology. Very cool. Well, I will put the um, anthology in the show notes and go 
get a copy and read your story because that sounds great. <laughs> Let me know what you think of it. I will. I will. Cool. Well, thanks for taking the time to talk to me today. And uh, uh, we'll uh, see you. Will, will you be speaking for us at Starbase Indy this year? No pressure? Uh, I don't know if I'll have a have be far enough past the sabbatical to get a proposal in, but I'll at least try and attend and be thinking about what I could do next year. On the other hand, um, did give a talk about ChatGPT uh, here where I'm currently a visiting scholar at uh, Georgia College. And if there's interest, you know, I mean, I did actually pitch the talk as, you know, how ChatGPT and Google compare to the Star Trek computers. Uh, that was actually based on, you know, a talk that I gave prior to ChatGPT making wave uh, at Starbase Indy, but I'm sure I could take out the ChatGPT facet of things. And if there's interest. Uh, I mean, I, I don't even know why you would take out the ChatGPT part. I think that sounds like a great well, topic. Well, I mean, take out the ChatGPT part and just do that because the other part is. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, what was it? Two years, you know, not this past. Yeah, it was a couple years ago. because the year before. So, uh, well, you decide if it would delight you to just be an attendee and not speak, you can do that. But I always like hearing you speak or, I mean, you know, I never actually get to hear you speak at the con, but I always think I will. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, so think about what would delight you and, and let me know. Well, if you don't have anything else about ChatGPT proposed, mm -hmm. um, or you have enough that you need one more person to do something so you can have a whole session on it, uh, let me know and I will I will fill whatever gap is needed. I'm pro I can probably do that. Well, hey, thanks so much. And I will keep talking. And I look forward yeah. to reading your story. Yeah, thanks so much. Thanks so much for your interest. It's always a pleasure talking with you. Thanks for listening to the Starbase Indie Podcast. To find more information about our live event this November, check us out at starbaseindie.org or on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. See you on the Starbase!